you everyone for being here today. I'm quite privileged to be part of the TEDx crew today. My story about food is going to start in a second, and if the screen's up behind me in a second, you're going to see I'm going to be talking about what I call the great food hoodwink. And in many respects, I've spent today listening to everyone talking about the oceans, etc., etc., but it actually comes back down to food. Jared Diamond puts it very aptly when he says that the domestication of animals and the development of agriculture are responsible for all the human evils. And you just need to think about that a second. My journey with food started, like I think many of us, many years ago in the great outdoors of South Africa. I was lucky enough to grow up on the banks of the Breda River fishing with my dad or going down to the wild coast and catching mussel cracker oysters, harvesting mussels, etc., etc. And my journey with food started out of a necessity of having to know what to do with nature's bounty. And in the beginning, there were lots of experiments, and most of them were burnt, underdone, overdone, sandy, etc., etc. But so I learned to cook. And it's funny to think that as a kid, I knew more about where my food came from, doing that, harvesting mussels or catching fish myself, than I know about food now. So... I never anticipated being on television and having a cooking show, etc., etc., and many years ago I had an idea for a television show. My mom was a, a film producer, so she, I had the connections to create a television show, and I went off and I shot three seasons of a television show. They were ones I don't really talk about much anymore, but when I got to the fourth one is where I felt like I had to lift my game, so I went around to 13 of South Africa's best restaurants and kitchens and learned how to cook. And out of that, I learned two very important lessons when it comes to food. The first is that you've got to get your prep work done and out of the way. Otherwise, you're going to be the poor sod sitting in the kitchen sweating and slaving away while everyone else is having a glass of wine. The second and the more important lesson that I learned was that without great ingredients, you're never going to be able to prepare a great plate of food. And this got me thinking, where does our food actually come from? And so I embarked on what has been a life-changing journey for me and one that I'm still on. I went around to our food producers of South Africa and don't think this is a local problem, this is a global problem. And my first stop off was a free range chicken farm in Elgin which is just over the hill here, most of you will be familiar with it. And um, just to understand this picture, free range chicken is not a perfect world yet. If you can imagine that in South Africa 10 years ago you couldn't buy a free range or organic chicken unless you grew it and slaughtered it yourself. You couldn't eat it. So free range is a step in the right direction. Does anyone have an idea of how many chickens are in a commercial battery farm, a chicken farm? 30,000 birds roughly in one of those sheds you see on the side of the road when you're driving around South Africa. In a free range chicken shed there's 15,000 and if you've ever been into a, a, a battery chicken farm the smell of ammonia is something so overpowering that you walk in and you literally start crying from that ammonia getting through to you and you start coughing, etc., etc. And this is where I began to understand that we've become so smart as humans that we've developed ways to maximize production and profits, etc., etc., without any thought to what they're actually doing to the process and in turn to us. And um, I'd like to play a little clip that comes from this free-range chicken farm. Animal yeah. that you artificially enhance by injecting enhance or you know, okay. getting into the animal and the growth promoter can be a lot of things. So antibiotics in chickens can be a growth promoter. That's the, the other side of it. If you want antibiotics, you have to go to your doctor and get a prescription. 
But for someone to put that into my food, they can do it without asking my permission or asking my doctor. I have a right to know what's in my food. Yeah, we get saying. sick in yeah. our family. We go out and buy commercial chicken because we get the meat. <laughs> I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> but it's the truth, you know. I'm laughing, but I shouldn't be laughing because in our food cycle at the moment, we allow our food producers to put other stuff into our food and we get it for free. From there, I went off into the Karoo, and I'm not going to talk about that for the moment, but our farmers are under threat, and this is worldwide, not just in South Africa. And from there onwards, I went up to Lesotho, where I um, met a very incredible farmer called Greg Stubbs. And it's aquaculture, and considering we're here about talking about the oceans, I'm going to see a lot of people put up their hands right now and go, aquaculture is a disaster. You have to think why aquaculture has become a viable business in today's economic climes. And you know why? It's because we've managed to destroy the oceans to such a degree that we can no longer get for free from the oceans what we were given previously. So you know what the human species has done? We've developed aquaculture. And, it, listen, it's very efficient. For 1.1 kilograms of protein, you get one kilogram of fish back. But this is where I begin to understand that our farmers are the most important people in our lives. From Lesotho, I head up to Limpopo, and I meet a, a farmer called Flip Null, and he's doing vegetable farming. And to understand the farming mindset, you've got to actually wind back the clock to the end of the Second World War. Now you can imagine we come out of the Second World War, we turn our armaments into pesticides and fertilizers, we turn our swords into plowshares, we turn our tanks into tractors, and we offer farmers a solution to increase their yields like twice, 200% up by putting these chemicals and fertilizers and pesticides into the soil. Problem is, is that to a man, farmers don't understand the short-term, medium-term or long-term effects of what they're putting into the soil. And Flip was so special because he had actually realized that his yields had been decreasing with all these fantastic technological advances. And something was going wrong. And what he did, and funny enough, it's what Claire's talking about, is he married nature smarts with human smarts. You know, this is a mindset. And all he did was really simple. He started composting back into the soil. And any good gardener will tell you that's what you do if you want to increase your yields. From Limpopo... That's a compost you're seeing being made there. At home, everyone have a compost heap? Worm farm? Harvest rainwater? I got my first two egg-laying chickens last week. They, uh, one of them, Myrtle, is probably going to die shortly because she's not producing the eggs that I desire from her. <laughs> Listen, do you know that in, in the animal kingdom, if we eat you as a domesticated animal, if we eat you, it sucks to be a male. You know, if you're a male sheep, you lose your balls and you die because you can't produce <laughs> more speed. The same happens with cattle, goats, etc., etc. So from Limpopo, I then cut across Botswana and I end up in Namibia and I'm now checking out cattle. And you must understand, I'm a, a foodie. I should know what's going on with my food. And um, I end up in what's well, a very small feedlot. Um, anyone ever been to a feedlot? No? Okay. Grain-fed beef comes from feedlots. And I'll talk about that in a second. The one you see behind me is a small one, only 3,000 cattle. Um, Corin beef in the free state has 100,000 cattle in a feedlot. Now, cows are ruminants. They're designed to eat grass, finished, and claw. How many of you go to restaurants and you open up the menu and the front side of it says, grain-fed beef, and you've been fed this lie that it tastes better, grain-fed beef. 
Feedlots exist for one reason and one reason alone, and that's to drive a profit chain to an abattoir that it's uh, that run 24-7. Now, cows are ruminants, so the minute you start giving them other stuff, i.e. grain, molasses, whatever else to eat, to fatten them up in a three-month period, which would be a year's worth of growth on, on felt, you have to give them other stuff. And that other stuff, when they're slaughtered, is kindly given to you. should be thinking about that a little. So I end up in this feedlot, and um, just to explain the statistics to you, 100,000 cattle produce the human equivalent of a million people's sewage a day, and it's an ecological disaster. Imagine concentrating that amount of manure in a space when it's designed to be spread and feed the felt, and any farmer or gardener will tell you that the best manure or the best compost is one that's passed through an animal. It's what it's designed to do. And... Uh, once you've been in a space like this, you just begin to question the human species and its intelligence. For my last part of being in Namibia, I um, had to go to an abattoir. I eat meat, albeit only twice a week now, and the experience you're about to see changed my life. Actually, just thinking, what, what are we doing? I no longer take part in this process that allows us to give the responsibility away to slaughter animals on our behalf without even understanding where it comes from. We've become very much a consumeristic society that's used to want water, turn on a tap, feel like a chop, go down to a supermarket, buy something that's shrink-wrapped, pre-packaged, and off we go. We don't have any concern about this because we don't deal with any of it on a daily basis. It's easy for us. We've lost complete respect for where our food comes from and what it actually takes to grow our food, to keep the human species on the planet. From Namibia, I went down to, and there were a whole lot of other stop-offs, including traditional fishermen and so on and so on, but I ended up in Ceres, funny enough, where a lot of our fruit comes from, fruit juices, etc., etc. And for the first time, I began to understand what's actually going on with the farming community. If you make demands from the farming community, and I'll give you a simple example, I want an organic apple. If a farmer can make a little bit of a profit from that, he or she will produce it. Because they are in business just like every single one of us is. They need to put their kids through school, pay a bond, etc., etc., etc. And then I started thinking about this process a bit more, and I'm going to come back to it in a couple of minutes. From Ceres, I headed off with my last stop, and um, I did two fishing trips. One to the tuna fishing grounds of Cape Point, and one to catch snook. 
That's snook there. It's known as the Cryfontaine crocodile. Do you know that they've got a coagulant, anticoagulant on their teeth, so if they bite you, you bleed to death? No kidding, man. <laughs> Come on. If you get bitten by one of them, you can squeeze the eyeball on the cut and stop it from bleeding. But you know that the Western Cape has an amazing, sustainable source of protein via that fish. But when we were out in the fishing grounds, we also came across a couple of these trawlers. And this is where it starts getting pertinent to us. Because when you are one person pole fishing or line fishing with a rod in your hand, it's sustainable fishing. It's not just taking up everything. And this is a small trawler, and this is what they suck in. This is not discriminate fishing. This is just taking everything out of the ocean in one fell swoop. And in many respects, the oceans are not corporate play toys. Got to think about this. What right do these big fishing companies have to rape our oceans? This is a resource that owns, that the whole world owns, that all of us own. And these guys go in there and take these massive quotas, overfish. The whole reason that we're in this situation is not because someone is practicing sustainable fishing. It's about profit, about putting food on our tables. And I'll just give you one very small example. Do you, do you know what a dairy farmer gets for a liter of milk? Or do you know what you pay for a liter of milk, I should ask? Nine rand? Ten rand? Do you know what a dairy farmer gets? Two rand fifty. So we pay 400% more for the privilege of having all the good stuff removed for it, from it. They make butter, they make cheese, we get the substandard product at the end of the line, and we pay 400% more. So the farmer who takes all the risks on the front side of this food chain who has to take, deal with predator loss, drought, weather conditions, etc. And the end consumer are the ones that are getting the wool pulled over their eyes. All these middlemen in between who don't add any value, who don't take any risks, who we don't need to know, are the ones who are adding to the cost of our lives. In our lifetime, there has been the death of the butcher, the baker, and the candlestick maker. Yeah. So... I then get back to Cape Town, and I'm now starting to think about where does our food actually come from. And I've had an eye-opening journey, and I'm beginning to realize that I know nothing. And if I know nothing, what is the chance that you know anything? So I attack the fast food joints because they are such easy targets. And I can't play the clip of where I actually go into the fast food joints and ask them what's going on because I couldn't get a satisfactory answer. And when I say, at store level in South Africa, not one fast food joint could give me a satisfactory answer when I ask the question of, where does my meat come from and what's in it? Not one. So when I got back into the office, I made a couple of phone calls, and this is what happened. Why does the Mac surprise me? The customer care line is non-existent. Let's try the next one. <laughs> the number you have dialed is invalid. Please consult your telephone directory or call 1023 for assistance. The <laughs> <laughs> All the numbers that I could pull from the website of these respective companies are not helping me whatsoever. Thank you for calling customer care line. You're speaking to Shannon. Good afternoon. How may I assist you? Hi, Shannon. Um, I'm desperate to find out where you get your chicken from. Unfortunately, 
Unfortunately, I don't have that information for you at the moment. But I know all that I know is that it comes from Tate Storm. Uh, just hold on, hold on a second for me. Sure. Uh, what, what beef is it? Well, in your patties, you know, your dear uh, burger, does it... Okay, um, that you'd have to speak to Michael. He's, he's the butcher. Okay, uh, what I can do for you is I can um, forward this This continued with every single one of them. No That's one came back to me, not one of them. Only Kauai was honest enough to tell me that they're not there yet, this was a year ago, and that they're working towards it. But not one of the fast food joints in South Africa would give me an answer of a very simple question. Where does my meat come from and what's in it? And I believe I'm running out of time because I would love to talk to you more about this. And I'm really settled into it now. But it took me a while. You know, you walk onto stage and the heart is beating and things. But my big realization is that I have no power as an individual, none whatsoever. And that's where I realize collectively we have incredible power by via a concept called the food democracy. And the food democracy is quite simple. We all work very hard for our money. We get to choose how we spend our money. And before you start buying your food, you only have to ask one question. Where does my food come from? And if the people that you buy your food from can't give you a satisfactory answer, you've got to spend your money somewhere else. And then, you know, apply it to your whole lifestyle. You'll find that it'll change how you think about food. But at the same time, you get to break all those things that are profit-driven along the way. You know, if a farmer uses fertilizer upstream from the ocean, everybody downstream from him is affected. And that means you and I via our drinking water, the crops that we eat, the animals that drink it. So by making just one question prevalent, when you go out and buy your food, you can actually start changing how our food is produced in this country, and not only this country, in the world. And that's what you all have to do. Stop putting your head in the sand. Don't let them pull the great food hoodwink on you. Ask the question, where does my food come from and what's in it? And if any of those food suppliers can't give you an answer, it's quite simple, don't support them. And then collectively we have incredible strength to change the way our food is produced and at the same time we get to save this little planet that we live on, this one-of-a-kind model that we have. Thank you very much everyone. Justin Benella.